When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. guys welcome back to foul play i have Gemma here again Gemma, it's so good to see your smiling face again how are you doing uh i've been sick but i recuperated enough because this is so important tonight's episode is imperative that we get this out and so i would do this from the hospital if i had to i believe that our guest tonight is one of the most important people in my life shane besides you I'm excited to hear from her. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to get into the details about what we're going to discuss today. What are we discussing today, Gemma? Well, as we previewed for your listeners, tonight we know you guys have been waiting for this. We're going to talk about Gerard Coob. And as everybody might know by now, in July of 2023, Two reporters from the Baltimore Banner, Julie Sharper and Justin Fenton, visited Coob in his home in Summers Point, New Jersey, which is on the Jersey Shore, and went to his home. They had spent quite a bit of time before they went talking to various women, more than a couple about allegations of abuse against Coob. Now, most of your listeners, including Shane and I, we think that Coob's now looking back after several years, his presentation in The Keepers is odd, to say the least. And we're going to talk tonight a little bit about the article itself and what the article, the main points of it, And then we're going to introduce our guest who is in that article. And she's very public about what happened to her. And we're going to give her a chance to talk about it. From my understanding, the attorney general report went out and there were two women who read through the report. And when it got to a certain person's name who they had accused of rape, the attorney general's report was referring to him as the Jesuit intern. And that is kind of what started the the article. Is that correct? Correct. And what was strange about that is that those two women, and not just those two, there are three, four, five women had reported to the attorney general about their experiences with him, which were very inappropriate, and he was not named in the article. And we all questioned that. In fact, I wrote an op-ed that kind of 
said, okay, who's the Jesuit intern? Hint, hint. When Archbishop Keogh was open, the first year and the second year it was open, Jesuit seminarians came and taught religion to the students because they were required as part of their training to teach in a Catholic high school. And Gerard Koob was one of them. He had met Kathy Sesnick the year before that at a conference. And so when he was assigned or came to Keogh, he already knew her. He told me several years ago, he had no idea about teaching. And Kathy said, come in my classroom and watch. And he said, that's how we learned how to interact with teenagers. Now, after two years, the archdiocese and the school decided that they would not be using the interns anymore. Coop claims that it was because the school felt that the interns were too liberal. I disagree with that. It was a very progressive school. The Jesuits did a good job. I mean, you know, they use a Socratic method where you interact with your students and you talk and you have conversations and there's no preaching. But it's his claim that the Jesuits left because the school said they were presenting liberal ideas, which they felt were too liberal. So with that said, he knew Kathy. And as presented in The Keepers, there was some kind of relationship between the two of them. He says he was deeply in love with her. I frankly don't believe that she felt the same way about him. That's beside the point because that's my opinion. So the women that the two reporters spoke to alleged that at different times, he sexually assaulted them. And two of them who reported this to the attorney general were from Maryland. The attorney general could not include the allegations from two women in Virginia and from our guest tonight in New York in the attorney general's report. So I hope that clarifies that. So there are numerous allegations and they are credible. And so what happened was when the reporters went to visit him, they showed up unannounced and he let them in. Now, I don't know about you, Shane, but if somebody came to your house and and you didn't know them and they were reporters and they said, we want to talk to you about sexually abusing teenagers, would, would you probably kick them out and call the police, right? Yeah. In fact, my first line of defense is always, I do not recall. I need an attorney. I would not talk right. to anyone and how would I believe them? They spent two hours there and all of that's outlined in the article. He used the very same answers that we have heard him use for 50 some years that he knew nothing about it. He never heard of the abuse until the 90s, that he never met Joseph Maskell. That's a biggie. Koo was assigned and lived at a retreat house in Annapolis called Manresa. And Maskell took many groups of adults, teenagers, police officers, lots of people 
to retreats there. A retreat is when you go away for a couple of days and you think about God, basically. And so it's not a large campus. It's one large building. It's now senior housing, but it has one dining room. And there would be no way that their paths could not have crossed while Koo was living there. He claims he was living somewhere else, but he was living at Manresa when the alleged abuse happened. So the two reporters spent all this time with him. He did say that three of the women had written to him last year. He described the letters. I'm going to quote him as repulsive. Now, let's say the letters were true. Well, they may be repulsive to him, but they came from the hearts of women who were hurt when they were teenagers. It's an inappropriate word to use when somebody writes to you and says, you know, you abused me and that was wrong. So he denies all of it. And he continued talking about how all this came about. He blames, number one, Tom Nugent. He said, Tom Nugent planted the seed for these people to allege that he abused them. Now, Tom Nugent knew a couple of these women, but didn't know most of them, didn't know our guest tonight, didn't know the women who were from another state who were abused when they were 12 and 7. So that's not a good excuse. It's also not accurate. And it puts the onus directly on Tom. Tom is like I am. He's very outspoken. And so we become targets and people trash us and you have to stand up for what you believe. And so he puts the blame on Tom for this. In conclusion about the article, they came away from there with the information that went into the article, but he denies all of it. One of the things that he says is that it was a case of mistaken identity. He points to someone else having the same first name. But what was interesting is that these women are not saying that it was his name that they necessarily remember. It's how he looked, his eyes, how he presented himself. So the fact that he had his name, that they shared a first name, that was a non-answer to me. But yeah, he was very adamant that Tom Nugent was to blame for this whole thing. So that was a a big finger pointing to me. Yeah. I think it's all, yeah. I think it's also significant that the mistaken identity, he said his voice has changed and his appearance has changed, but this is a good example. I've reconnected. I'm 71 because of the keepers with people that knew me when I was in high school, they recognize my voice your voice doesn't change that much. It changes when you're 12 and you're a guy, but your voice doesn't change that much. Your general appearance doesn't change that much. So that's his excuse for that. I also will say that I have, and some people might fault me for this, I have kept a neutral but polite line of communication with him only because I'd like him to out himself. And after this episode, I'm going to send him the episode. I 
have to be very careful. I fear for my own safety. I don't know who he knows, but I find the stories and the ones in the article, there are three. They are very credible. And I believe those women. Yeah. And we've always given, we call him Jerry, but his real name is Gerard. Right. We've always given him an opportunity to come on. He's always refused to be questioned. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is that he mentioned in his defense that he wasn't teaching at the time that the accusations of the two women at Keogh took place. So he would have needed a car to get from the university that he was at, which was Catholic University, I believe, is what the article said. Where he was living? Yeah. No, he was living at Manresa, which was in Annapolis, an hour away. And then later in the article, he kind of disputed that. At first, he said, I didn't have a car. Mm-hmm. And then later, he says, well, there was a car, but he shared it with the other priests. Mm-hmm. So it kind of like switched. But then we also know that the people who were abusing people, it was, I mean, this is a ring. This is a network of people. So if you are a part of this ring of abusers, you're carpooling. It's a non-defense to me. Got it. You know, you don't need a car. (laughs) You know, that really is not a big defense for me. Another thing that really shocked me when I read it, and I guess it shocked me because of just the way that people describe Kathy, and also the sentence was out of left field for me. But he mentioned to the reporters who were there that in September of 1969, he and Kathy attempted unsuccessfully to have sex. And I have no reason to know why he would have mentioned that to anyone. That baffled me, and it also confused me. And it made it it just made me feel very uncomfortable. And you know what? It's right out there with his comment in the keepers about a police officer presenting it's embarrassing to even talk about presenting her vagina to him right and he stands by that and he told me myself that he did not pass the second polygraph test when kathy was found and he says that it's that officer that performed that polygraph test that went in the back room and came out with Kathy's body part. Now, first of all, I know that the polygraph was done at the police station. There was at no time any body parts of hers at the police station. Her body was taken to the medical examiners. Her family had to unfortunately identify her there. Her dad did it. And that is where she remained. So... You know, if that cop was trying to shock him, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think it's bizarre. But to even bring it up is like him saying, we tried unsuccessfully to have sex. What is that supposed to mean? And he said it to two reporters who will print it. And to me, this is embarrassing for a victim. So the vagina in a bag thing. That's an embarrassing thing for a victim. Right. And this, we attempted to have sex. This is an embarrassing thing for a victim. Yeah. Right. Who, who everyone looks at as a very positive person. 
you know, so it was just very, very bizarre to me. Very, very bizarre. In our ongoing journey, dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. Embark on a journey into the unknown with Navigating Advocacy, where we turn armchair detectives into real-world advocates, one unsolved case at a time. Navigating Advocacy is a true crime podcast hosted by me, Melissa. And me, Whitney. We are two passionate advocates who believe in the power of action. Our podcast isn't about sensationalizing crime stories. It's about inspiring change. Join us as we explore cases with a focus on ethical storytelling. As individuals with a strong commitment to volunteering and a boots-on-the-ground approach, we believe that action-oriented advocacy is the means through which we can make a difference. We're here to empower you to also become advocates, no matter where or who you are. Whether you're a seasoned true crime fan or new to the genre, we invite you to join us on this journey of discovery and advocacy. Navigating Advocacy is available wherever you get your podcasts. But yeah, so one of the things that it also mentioned leading into our guest who is here with us is that Coob dismissed some other accusations of letters that he had received. While the reporters were there, he evidently showed them letters that he had received from women who had accused him of wrongdoing. And I believe he had four letters with him, although he wouldn't show the reporters the letters. And he said that these four women wrote him these letters. And one of them was from a woman who, who we will refer to as Ronnie. And he dismissed her accusations. And why don't you talk about that for a moment, Gemma, and then introduce our guest. Right. So as you all may have figured, our guest tonight is Ronnie Norpel. And Ronnie is one of my best friends that I've never met. And she and I have met soul, heart, mind. I know that when I finally meet her, we're going to be in tears because we're like sisters and we get each other. She is a major badass. And I believe everything she has told me. Why in the world 
would somebody put themselves out there and make this stuff up? There is no reason. So we're going to turn this over to Ronnie. Ronnie lives in New York City. And I did tell her before we started that we don't all listen as fast as she talks. <laughs> I love this woman. And I can say that to her. We're going to ask you to start from the beginning about how you and your family came to know Jerry Coob, and then we'll let you take it from there. So welcome, my friend. Hey, Gemma. Hey, Shane. You guys, thanks for all of your hard work on this and Shane, your other work as well on Foul Play. This is really amazing, Gem. We're finally having this conversation. Mm-hmm. So where do I start? Well, let me just say I'm just Irish Catholic and my family was in the biz, so to speak. I have aunts, cousins, great aunts who are nuns and a couple priests in the family. So, you know, pretty serious Catholic upbringing. I went to Catholic school for kindergarten, first, second, third. I'll just go right to how I know Jerry Coop. He basically has been in my life my whole life. He and my mother were classmates in eighth grade. He would claim they were best friends. I have since garnered more information about that from my mother and, in fact, not best friends then. But that was the legend he kind of promoted on all of us. But there was not even a promotion of a legend because he was always kind of there. In the summer of 1969, I turned seven. He brought to our home twice from Maryland this awesome, unbelievably cool nun, Sister Kathy Sesnick, up to visit us. And she was just sparklingly beautiful. And one of the big things for me was that I got to talk to her about Jesus because I was taking my first communion lessons and I'd be making my first communion. And this is really exciting when you come from a big Catholic family like that. So she was just so loving. And I have to say that that was one of the two main things for me that just hit me right when I watched The Keepers was how you and Abby and the other ladies, Gemma, described Kathy. And I started kind of yelling at the TV. (laughs) That's who I knew. That's Kathy. That's Kathy. I have to say, I never forgot her. And the reason we're taping this on January 3rd, which is the anniversary of when Kathy's body was discovered. So rest in peace, loving Kathy Sesnick. But whenever next Jerry came back to our home visit, because he was a very much a regular visitor. And I remember asking my mom, mom, why is Jerry so sad? And she said, because Kathy died. And that was period, end of sentence, ask me no more questions about this. And, you know, God bless my mom. She doesn't want to tell a seven-year-old that she was murdered and found frozen. So she said, she died. And I knew what it meant that someone died because my grandma died when I was really young. And that was a huge loss in our family. Like my grand's death created this huge hole. So the fact that my mom said she died, but also sent me this message, thou shalt not ask any more questions, always stuck with me. And then, you know, I guess in 2004 or something, something spurred my brother to talk to me about it. And 
then I went online and I found the 1994 Sun article and read about that. And then I was like, I had already had a different, separate, earlier, yes, sexually related problem with Jerry Tube before I remembered what happened when I was younger. So in 2004-ish is when I wrote to him and we had a conversation. And Shane, let's go right to those defenses. You know, you guys said, oh, there was a similarly named priest who lived nearby. This person has changed his story 50 times over 50 years about what happened. So as far as the other person who had a similar name, interesting you should mention that, Shane, because during this conversation I had with him, I believe it was 2004, I was asking him about Kathy. And there were a couple of really crazy things he said to me, including that he was doing that thing that I'm sorry to say, but criminals do, which is they deflect the attention over to somebody else. So he's like, oh, well, ha ha, isn't it kind of funny? There was another man with the name Gerard who taught at the school just a mile over up the hill and ha ha. And I'm thinking to myself, ha ha, I remember this person. She was wonderful. And ha ha about a similar name. Ugh, that just is all kinds of red flaggy for me. Well, so I can tell you, brought Kathy to the house twice the summer before she went missing. And, you know, for my Catholic school money, the fact that he didn't mention that in the keepers, I'm like, oh, a part of me, Mr. Priest, man, that's called a lie of omission in the Catholic realm when, oh, wow, that would have been important to mention you were such good friends, soulmates, that you brought her for a couple road trips to Pennsylvania. Okay. So that's lie of omission, major lie of omission, if you ask me. Not to start pointing fingers at a culprit, but I know the sinfluence he had on me. Ronnie shares with us a memory she has talking about Kathy with her late brother, Joe. Before Joe died, even though he was literally dying, he took the time and watched the keepers. And the first thing he said was, I always thought that guy was a liar. Right away, he said to me, he said, I remember riding in the car. And I said, me too. He said, the Maverick. And I said, yeah, me too. And now what's really funny is the word Maverick all through my life has always had this funny, like it was just like, I think when I was a kid and she had this car called the Maverick, I was always into words. And I thought Maverick, that's just kind of a cool word. And so all through my life, like the, the word Maverick has popped up here and there. But Joe and I rode in the Maverick and he said, I remember the plaid seats in the back. And I said, me too. And in my recollection, Jerry borrowed me and my brother to use as stunt children. He took us on a short little field trip with Sister Kathy. I think engendering that lovey-dovey, let's get married, look, we can have a little family, look at us with these little kids kind of idea in her. I'm convinced he manipulated her, not fully. And by the way, I have it on really good account other than my own memory Kathy was not the only nun that Jerry Koo brought to our family's home for a weekend. And one of them I specifically remember, who wasn't as straight-laced, I'll say, as Kath. I was just really, like, kind of unctuously suspicious of what I didn't know. (laughs) She was a little too sexual or something. I was like, she's not acting like a nun. 
And she was there hanging out with Jerry. So I don't know what that was about, but there you have that bit of intel. Okay, so yeah, we rode in the car. Joe right. said he remembered sitting at the dinner table for meals with Kathy. I do remember like a physical thing where maybe we were sitting out in the backyard and then I was not on her lap, but almost as a shield between her and Jerry. It's a very weird memory I have. And my brother's comment about Kath was that he felt she was out of her integrity. Now, that's such a heavy thing to say, except that my brother, like I said, was he knew he was dying. He's on his way out. And I really feel that people in that state have a, start getting a whole bunch of clarity about that. So that's what his remark was, out of her integrity. And I'm here to say that that's how I feel that Jerry's unfortunate influence on me has created a bit something about that in myself. Tell us about the experience that you had when he came to visit your home. I believe you said you were 12. Sure. I have to really hand it to Justin Fenton and Julie Sharper. I really appreciate the hard work they put in on that article. And obviously they can't tell my whole story, but I can't tell you guys. So Christmas 1974, he was a regular visitor for the holidays. You know, he'd pop in on people's kids' birthday. You know, it just depended. I'm one of seven kids, minus my dear older brother who departed three years ago, a couple weeks ago. I was 12 and a half and you get your first bra, you get your first handheld hair dryer. So I got a hair dryer from Santa. And because I'm the oldest daughter, I was always first in line to help my mom get the dinner to get, you know, we were, we all got together and got things ready, but I would often wait to take my shower until just before guests were arriving or right before dinner, even just because there was no time otherwise, et cetera. So, but here I am. So I'm going to go take my shower. And I just kind of was going like, wow, I'm going to get to use my hair dryer. But if anyone else there will recall, you can, you watch the guy at the hairdresser do it, but he gets to use two hands and he's doing it on someone else's head. But when you have to try to learn how to do it yourself initially, it's very weird. I don't know if I said this out loud, but next thing you know, oh, who should volunteer? To help me dry my hair. Jerry Coop, I'll help you. Where were you? In my family home. And then... Were you in the bathroom? No, were you in yeah, the bathroom? yeah. No, I took a shower. Came out freshly showered with my robe on and I probably a towel on my head. And he was waiting for me with the hairdryer in my bedroom that I shared with my two sisters. Two of my sisters. It's waiting for you. Well, yeah, because it was just part of like, okay, I'll help you. So yeah, he was waiting for me. And then, so I sat down there at the vanity. We had this cute little setup with the mirror and he started drying my hair and over my eye and asking me whether he had ever told me about my sexy favorite movie star, Veronica Lake. As he's blowing more hot air in my ear and wherever. My parents never said the word sexy in our house. So to even hear this priest friend of my mother who has essentially helped raise me basically call me sexy Veronica. You know, it's like sexy Veronica Lake and using my baptismal name while he's doing that. 
I find it really disgusting. Now, I will say that I had put that incident out of my mind because what happened next, and this is, I'm trying to lean on the fact I saved myself. I felt like a very odd sensation while he's saying all this and fixing my hair with the hairdryer and saying sexy Veronica. And I felt an unusually odd feeling below my waist. And I was like, I don't know what this is. He was not touching me, but he was seducing me. There's no other word to use. He's seducing a 12 and a half year old girl. So I quickly excused myself. I politely, as politely as I could without showing the fear, I excused myself. I have to go to the bathroom real quick or something. And I locked myself in the bathroom where I just taken the jar for too long. I made sure it, I just was like waiting and waiting. And then I waited extra time. And then I waited some more extra time so that I was certain he would have taken his leave of my bedroom so I could get dressed. And I went, I got dressed and went down to Christmas dinner and said nothing about it. But here's the thing about my confirmation name. I so revered or slash had been groomed by Jerry Cube that I had decided by the time Christmas had come around, we were already partway into our confirmation lessons. I was in public school, but I attended a couple days a week or whatever the drill was at St. Genevieve's with my brother's class as well and uh, the confirmation lessons. And I had decided, because I was a tomboy and we had a lot of Toms and Joes already in our family, I took the name Gerard for my confirmation name. And then he abused me with the hair jar sexy situation and just left me like, what do I do with that? If I tease mom's friend, why would he like, and did he really do anything? Well, guess what? He was making a play for it. He was making a play and I saved myself. If I hadn't walked out, who knows what it would have happened. But the fact here it is, Justin Fenton was so cool. After they visited Jerry in New Jersey while they were working on that article, he phoned me and he said, we were in New Jersey yesterday. I need to ask you, promise, no matter how outraged you might be, when I tell you what he said, do not contact him. I said, don't worry, I will not. And I do find it rather outrageous. This man who came and went as he pleased in my family home and had known my father for however long, used my deceased father as his alibi for his abuse of me. He put, rather than saying that he didn't do that, he said my father was in the room. My father died in July 2017. That's what a great friend Jerry Cube was to my father. So, yeah, I'm kind of outraged about that. Okay. So, he claimed that your dad was in your bedroom when he was. Yeah, trying, while he was while drying he was my hair and telling me about sexy Veronica Lee, who, by the way, in all of my research I've done the past six and a half years, Veronica Lake was abused by a priest friend of her mother's when she was 12 years old. How about that? And she was a weather person in Baltimore in the, like, 64, 1964. I wonder if Jared seen his sexy favorite movie star on the weather. Yeah. What a pig. What a psycho. Honey, what else in the article 
that Coob stated as truth do you take issue with, besides your father being in the room? Are there other things that, okay, I remember you told me that at one point, and I believe this is in the article, that you talked to him about a relationship with somebody. Mm. And he said, right. Yeah, that's the interesting thing as far as like the quote chain of events. Jerry Cube's abuse of me. And by the way, let me just say this. I understand that I was not physically assaulted, quote at all, but that is physical and hair is sexy. And you can find the photo online of Robert Goulet brushing Julie Andrews' hair during Camelot, which is where the song, If I Ever Leave You, comes from. Go look at that. And Robert Goulet, of course, was shining it on with Julie Andrews behind Richard Burton, the king's back. But yeah, so hair is sexual. And he was doing that. But I'm just going to say so many people have suffered so much worse than I have. So much worse. So I just need to really recognize that. The reason I just said that thing about the physical thing is because there's this, you know, when people are, how are you abused? Emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, sexually, physically. But the spiritual and emotional abuse I don't know whether you guys have discussed this term, but there's a term out there called moral injury. This is what we are talking about, which makes the sexual abuse by priests on children and women and men in their own sheep moral injury. Okay? I propose right now we should start our own Truth and Reconciliation Commission We need to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission like the ANC did and have the priests sit right there and let the kids who are now 50 or however old we are speak directly to any of them who are still alive. And they should sit there and take it, okay? Just like they made us sit there and take it. Moral injury. I'll tell you about The other moral injury this person did to me and the hell it caused for me. I worked for the Philadelphia Phillies, my hometown team, when I was a younger person. And Mr. Kube is a huge Phillies fan. Anyway, there I was working for the team. I had worked during college and then I got hired full time. It was really fun. I was very psyched about it and got involved with the rookie. Rookie says he's still married, but he's getting divorced. So I sort of tread lightly into this situation. And then lo and behold, it's Christmas time again. And Jerry's visiting. And I consult with him because I trusted him so much. And he was such a good friend of the family. And he was our family priest. You know, I trusted Jerry implicitly. And I decided, you know what? I really was thinking I held my virginity through college. Okay. And so I'd held tightly to it, trying to be a good Catholic girl. So, but then I get involved with the Phillies and I go and I'm seeing this rookie and I'm like, there's Jerry. I'll ask Jerry. I really didn't want to sleep with the baseball player, but I was like, ah, you know, how long am I going to wait anyway? And I thought that Jerry would give me good advice. Like I, I really, what it was, was I wanted him to say no. I wanted him to say no, don't. I wanted to have a different excuse. So it's someone else's 
it's hard to explain, but I swear to you, I was looking for a no. And he says, well, do you love him? And yeah, yeah. Uh, does he love you? Uh, yeah. Like, what the heck? Really? Like, how, you know. Well, then, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and I, oh, and I had told him that the guy was still married, but getting divorced. And I obviously wasn't married to the guy. And he's like, yeah, go ahead. And let me know how it goes. And let me know how it goes. He was pretty much saying, like, go for it. Oh, and check back with me because I'm a pervert. I, I've talked to a number of people about this since. People who are close to me. And they've said, you know what, my aunts, if you had come to me, I would have said, if you're hesitant, the answer is no. And he knew what my mother's values for me were. I knew. So that was really very confusing for me to get the get ahead from him. So then I had to hazard that kind of on my own. And with, I think, a little more confusion even. I did go ahead, and I'm sorry to tell you, and it was a major point of sadness, but I kind of worked it out in the book a little bit. I made a very difficult personal choice, and I had an abortion. And it scarred me, and it changed me. And I stand by my decision. I stand by my decision. Attention friends, are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From Daring Escapes, to nail-biting encounters. Her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com, and use code SHANE for 10% off today. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. 
Are you tired of speculative, sensational, poorly researched, and disrespectful true crime podcasts? Me too. Hi, I'm Eric Carter-Londine, and I'm here to introduce you to True Consequences Podcast, an advocacy-focused show that sets itself apart from the rest. You see, True Consequences is a love letter from my baby brother, Jacob Londine, who was murdered nearly four decades ago, and he still needs justice. What sets my show apart is the deep dive research I do, the first person accounts I bring to light, and the empathetic lens through which I approach each case. I know what it's like to fight for justice for a loved one, and I'm committed to helping other families seeking justice. You can listen to True Consequences wherever you get your favorite podcast. Join me, Eric Carter Londine, on this journey to uncover the truth and advocate for justice. Together, we can make a difference. Don't settle for sensationalism. Choose True Consequences podcast for advocacy-focused true crime. Subscribe now and be part of the movement for justice. When was the last time you ever saw him in person? And my second part of that question is, when did you sort of start coming around to realizing what had happened in retrospect? As soon as I saw him on the Keepers. Really? Tell me about that. Well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you. So in 2005, I believe in October 2005, was when Lynn Abraham, the then DA of Philadelphia, the first report about the creepy priest dropped in Philly. Okay. When that report dropped, I too was really pissed off. And I was just like, oh my God, look at this. This is sickening. It's like gross. And yet I wondered why was I so angry? And then, you know, I'd written this piece about it. And that's actually, that was the piece where by the end of that is where I came up with, they have to do a Truth and Reconciliation Commission if they're going to be taken seriously about curing this crap in the church. That at the end of that piece is where I came up with that. Fast forward, I'm watching the keepers, and there he was, Mr. Big Man on campus, bragging about how he saved some Eucharist for Kathy. And let me tell you, he used to say mass in our living room on any Sunday he was in town. That was the one thing all of us kids were like, yay, we don't have to get dressed up and drag ourselves up to church. Anyway, as soon as I watched him and saw his whole demeanor, I finally, I got it. I got it. And the reason why I never thought anything quote, of what he did to me was because he didn't actually molest me in that way. But he abused me a lot. He used to play psych games. I mean, my mother knows about this. She did say, yeah, you know, I used to play these silly games with you kids. And I'm like, silly games? Here's one. Interestingly, George Harrison had a popular song out at the time, Me, My, Mine or something. But Coog, I didn't even know it was a song at the time, but he played this game where, you know, oh, we would talk about something. He'd get try to engage me in conversation or make me talk to him. But I wasn't allowed to use I, me or mine. So I'd start, he'd say, oh, what did you do yesterday? And I'd start saying, well, my mom and I, oh, you can't say my. And then I said to my mom recently, how gross and crazy is it that I couldn't blame her as my mom with this crazy game? I mean, my mom, she's my mom. I can't say my, I mean, what the hell is that? It's just whackness. Ronnie, when he came to visit you with Kathy, Did they sleep in the same bedroom? Oh, no. Oh, no. So it was all wholesome. Well, 
yeah, except, you know, once us kids were in bed or my parents were in bed, they, he could have taken her down into our playroom. I did read some things online that said some people think that maybe she had an abortion. When he said the thing in the article that they tried to have sex, but and that's she, a rumor. Oh, he said he, she had kidney problems in that same article, right? And I, and, and I noticed that someone who had been a student at Western that fall noted that she had been ill in the I, beginning of school or what have you. I can clarify that. The spring before that, when I was a junior, right before Kathy left Keogh, she was out for several weeks and she was in the hospital with kidney stones. So we knew that she was ill from that. She was at the hospital right across from Keogh. I think some girls went over and visited her. Uh-huh. So that was that. But I've looked at the autopsy. There was no pregnancy. I don't believe she wrote that letter. Because if she did and talked about her period finally came, the letter was written like super early on Monday morning of a day that she would have had to go to school. Kathy is not the type to start a letter that would take three hours to write at 1230 a.m. on a school day. I had it analyzed by a profiler from Scotland Yard who analyzes content, not handwriting. It's not typed as he claims, it's handwritten and it's not her handwriting, but it's the content that I had analyzed. And that profiler who doesn't know Kathy, but knows the story said she doesn't believe Kathy wrote it. I believe he wrote it to cover himself. There are parts of it that are very Jesuit-like in writing. And I've looked at a lot of the profiler explained to me with the punctuation and the grammar and the parentheses that there are certain phrases that are in parentheses that would be what he would like her to be saying, not what she actually would say. And I take issue with the letter saying she wants to iron his clothes and cook for him, which Ronnie would be like you or I saying. <laughs> You're right. No. I don't have time. Iron your own shirt. She was, that was not Kathy. No, she'd be like, do it yourself, dude. So I do believe that he wrote it or had somebody write it for him. Right. They sent him pictures of the original and he said, well, that's curious to me too. That's all he said, but it wasn't typed. And, uh, you know. He's so not curious. Yeah. There was no pregnancy, no pregnancy. And even though. She was found two months later. Her internal organs were intact, only where they would be open to the elements and animals were they not intact. Right. But for example, her uterus was intact and there was no sign of either menses or pregnancy. And that is in the autopsy. I know it's awful to talk about it, but... People need to know. I almost feel like I should apologize that I had brought that up. No, that's but I, was, okay. I was just doing it because that's a motive. If you don't want someone to have a baby. Well, I that's think a motive. my reasoning is that she found out about the allegations. About yeah. The abuse, confronted him. And that was it. But I believe that, too, that she, that he's, he said you can't say anything. And she said, I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Regarding the autopsy, though, if I can say this, when was it actually, quote, made public or did Pete? No, no, the autopsy is not. I have refused to publish it. 
but I was given a copy of it by her family and they did not share it with anybody else, but somebody got a hold of it who I believe was deceitful and playing a role with all of us. He had it copied and distributed widely. He, now, the reason I'm asking is right. because in that same conversation I'd mentioned earlier, when which is the last time I talked to that guy, I believe 2004, he, besides chuckling over a similar name of somebody else, this is another thing he said to me. And I'm like, how would he have known this? Because he said, well, I believe he said the autopsy report, and he said that there was strangulation. Then he also mentioned the wound behind her, you know, where she'd been hit in the head. And when he mentioned the hit in the head, what he said was the hole was about the size of a signet ring, like one a bishop would wear. I'll never forget that he said that to me. And I thought, that is so specific. And why would he even think that or say that? Or, But the thing about the strangulation, I have to say, that is a very personal crime and it's to shut someone up. It is literally an act of silencing someone so that they cannot speak. I think that there's in, in the movie Three Days of the Condor at the very end, he says, well, you're never going to know when people are going to come to get you. Like it's going to be a friend of yours pulling up in a car, offering you a ride somewhere. That's what I think happened when they said that someone pulled into the parking lot. And also when they say about the similar cars, Jerry had a car that was the exact same color as the Maverick. Ronnie, what were the reactions towards you after the article came out? Like from your neighbors, from your family, from... Uh, I'm just very grateful. One friend, and she knows Jerry too. Like we were close enough. For, like she was around enough and she was right there for me. I'm very lucky. And, you know, I have a handful of really good friends. I will say that I'm also grateful. Some of my relatives have been there for me since the beginning and some others have come around. Still waiting on others. Sadly, a couple of my siblings, you know, whatever the opposite of it, supportive is, they actually just kind of made a joke about it to me. It was really hurtful. And I've been very angry about that. And I understand, you know, anger isn't anything. It's not nice. No one likes to be around anger. But this is a very angering situation. I wonder why they're not angry for me. But I understand this is not untypical. And that, you know, obviously speaks to guy grooms the parents first. So... I could tell you a little story about that that my mom shared with me recently, an aspect of what I would consider Jerry's grooming of my mother. So I'd, as I had mentioned earlier about their being, quote, best friends since eighth grade or from eighth grade or however he used to say it. When I said this to her a few weeks ago on the phone, I said, oh, so you guys, because we've been gently exploring this topic. And I said, oh, so you guys were best friends since eighth grade. No, not best friends. And I was very shocked to hear this. And I said, that's what he always said. That's just what I always believed. And she said, no, there were 26 of us in the class, 13 girls, 13 boys. And when you have such a small class, as you get older and you're out of school, and it was an eighth grade class, and in Catholic school, that's your child. So it's sort of like a graduating class, a big deal. And 
get closer later, but she said they were not close in school. They became closer friends when he, quote, started coming around. And she said that she remembers having my brother Tom on her hip the first time he showed up at our house. So that would have been fall of 1966 or something, somewhere in there. So no, not best friends. And then, so she says to me in the same conversation, she said, well, when they were in school, St. Dorothy's is the name of the parish. They attended eighth grade and it's in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. And mom lived very up the hill, Steel Road. Jerry lived on Annabelle Avenue in Havertown, a little further away. So she's telling me this story. He told me he used to purposely ride out of his way to ride by my house. He'd ride by on Steel Road. And I said, oh, I said, Mom, why would he have told you that or mentioned that? Well, I don't know if he might catch a glimpse of me walking to school or he's riding by my house. And I played a little dumb. And I said, you know, Mom, it sounds like he was crushing on you. And she goes, well, that's what he told me. Again, that's what he told me. So she's realizing she's been told something, but now she's realizing that it's only what she was told, not really what was true. So as far as his having a crush on her, she's a lovely woman and who would blame anyone for having a crush on my mom. So that wasn't what was in doubt. What was in doubt was, when did he tell you this, mom? After Kathy died. In order to, as I feel he did, with me because he knew how much I cared for Kathy and we had connected when she visited in joining me and mourning her and then in joining my mom in some kind of inappropriate flattery crap. I really, I do want to say that. I feel like Kathy died. He didn't want me to worry about that or ask or whatever. And he just kind of went, oh, you're my new best friend or whatever. And because I was the cute little girl who helped cheer up all of my aunts and uncles and my grandma died I became that for him too or tried or something and didn't even know I was opening myself up to that crap terrible when you first would have met Jerry what was he like like how would you describe him the first time I think he was around me I was about 13 months old so it's hard you know I can't even I can't even really speak to that how about, um, how would you describe him before Kathy died? Again, like it's one of those things where he was kind of like another uncle, but we never called him Uncle Jerry, although we called really good old friends of my dad's, Uncle Paul, Uncle Leo, Uncle Dick, but never called him Uncle Jerry. Nope. And he was not, obviously not a real uncle, but that's how much he was around and kind of part of our family. I will say, and it was really hard that until, no kidding, Shane, just a little over two months ago that my mom finally came around to see the truth in this. And I know that it it had to have been very, very difficult for her because she trusted him as we all did. We trusted him implicitly. And it's really hard for a woman of over 80 to have to face that and try to reconcile that. So I have a lot of compassion for my mom on that front. As angry as I've been, for her not being there for me. So it's in, we're now in a very unusual place. 
do you remember maybe what his personality was when he was around before Kathy died? Yeah, yeah. I can speak to like his demeanor and his soul. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, I will speak of one friend I, I disclosed to. And the first thing he said was, uh, Jerry, always the smartest guy in the room. When he could give you a look, if he didn't like what you said, to let you know how dumb you were and how wrong you were. And that, no. Okay. So, yeah, one of those shit don't stink people. Come on. Honestly, he has changed his story about his relationship with Kathy at least five times between the keepers and now. I mean, I personally was very shocked to see that he admitted he tried to have sex with her in that article. You know, I agree with you. I don't even know, except that it was more abuse, as I do feel that his using my dad as his alibi. That was abusing me more. Super gas lady trying to create doubt in my mind about what really happened. No way, fella. And my, and just for the record, my mom has repeated to me many times since then, that is crazy. That is crazy. So if that's what it took to get my mom to believe me, well, okay. But my father has been gone now, like I said, for six months. He died 10 weeks after the keepers. And the fact that he would use my dad as his, like, get out of jail free card or whatever you want to call it. Ugh, so disgusting. That's what's disgusting. And yes, when he used the words, you know, disgusting or Shama, what was the, the other word that you said earlier? Repulsive. He says this as if he had nothing to do with the fact that the letter had been written. I mean, that's insane. That's just totally psychopathic bullshit. I mean, that's some crazy talk. I'll tell you, it is disgusting. And then after Kathy died in 1969, did you notice a change in Jerry at all? Or was he still the same Jerry that you remembered prior to that? The change might have been like, then he drew me closer. But as far as his own personality, no. I just remembered something else I really wanted to mention because it's one of the pieces of evidence, if you will. There's been a lot of talk about the cigarette butt. Jerry Coops smoked cigarettes. And then this is the one change, Shane, that I will say that I did notice. Thanks. I'm so glad this actually is it. This is the answer. He ended up, next thing you know, he shows up at our house and he has a bag of tobacco and a pipe. And the name of the tobacco is Borkum Riff. I remember this. And he made this big kind of show out of filling the pipe, emptying the pipe. So now he's a pipe smoker. So now with a nod to McGree, this is not a pipe. <laughs> this was a cigarette. <laughs> now it's a pipe. Okay. I find that a little sus. The uh, cigarette that was found was actually the one that was found in the car that okay. was considered the crime scene. Right. And Maskell's DNA profile was taken. Right. The cigarette butt did not match anybody that they had DNA for at the time. Right. I don't know if his has ever been collected. Right. I know that Edgar Davidson's was. I know that Billy Schmidt was. I don't know about James Scannell. 
But I always thought it was a red herring, you know, like somebody threw it in there just to send everybody in the wrong direction. But Could I have guess been, it, but it, I'm it, just saying Jerry is a smoker and that thing about getting in a car with someone, you know, because you think it's safe or you want to get together, you know, whatever that was. Sure. Uh, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe Jerry was in the back seat, and that's maybe when he could have put his hands around her neck, but maybe not, you know? And she also a cigarette. had cuts on the front of her neck, eight of them that were not fatal, but would be typical of if somebody was behind you holding something against like your neck, a knife to yeah. your neck. Yeah. And so there might have been someone in the back quiet. seat. Maybe uh-huh. he was driving and I think so. And someone yeah. else was in the back seat. But yeah. I rode in that car. And let me tell you that to watch the program and, and look at all that and go, holy moly, it's just been kind of heavy. <laughs> and I, I have to say, Jean is just a hero. I hope to meet Teresa Lancaster one of these days as well. I just, God bless her. She went to law school and shout out to Wilson. And he was like Marilyn Durer of the year or something, right? That's fresh news. So good for him. You mean right. C.T. Wilson. I wrote something about this. I wonder if I could read it. It's not too long, but it's about the lying. It's just my feelings about the lying and my experience, if I may. Easy Rider, Easy Liar by Ronnie Norpel. Jerry Cube's performance on The Keepers was a revelation. He was my mother's friend in their eighth grade year, and he had access to me from the time I was 13 months old when my mom was grieving my grandmother's death. To realize as I watched that guy showing off on the program that he had groomed me throughout my childhood chilled me to the bone. Coob perpetrated two life-rattling incidents of a sexual nature on me. I had trusted him with my life implicitly. To realize further how he had enjoined me in his mourning of Sister Kathy Sesnick put a sickening spiritual twist on his predation. I support all survivors of the Keo devastation and beyond. We Catholics are schooled to distinguish between types of lies. There are lies of commission and lies of omission. That's how strictly our truth-telling is policed. Jerry Cube is an established liar for my information. Contrary to his never-saw-him-again presentation in The Keepers, Cube not only saw Pete McKean again after Kathy's murder, he brought Pete McKean to my family home in the Philadelphia suburbs more than a few times in the 70s. Pete McKean was an awesome dude, and I remember him fondly. R.I.P. Pete, dear Pete. Next, take a letter to you, Maria. Besides Cube's lie of commission stands a gaping lie of omission. Cube forgot to mention in the keepers his having brought Sister Kathy to my family home for two weekend visits in the summer of 1969. I vividly remember Kathy in my child heart. I was seven years old and studying for my first telecommunion. And it was so special that there was this cool nun that my mom's friend Jerry had brought up from Maryland with him. And she talked to me about loving Jesus and how special it would be when I received my first Holy Communion. Kathy was supposed to come back to Philadelphia to celebrate with me. I had invited her. I received my first Holy Communion on November 8th, 1969. RIP, dear Kathy. You guys, no kidding. Like, that's the really weird thing about it is 
I wonder, you know, about the shopping trip and buying whatever, you know, and I guess if the, she had told the girl it was a wedding gift for her sister, but they were supposed to come to Pennsylvania the next day for my communion. Didn't happen. Before we close, I sound like I run the show. I don't. Shane does. <laughs> so I do sometimes. But before we close, I have two requests. What would you like to say to him, first of all? What's the other one? What would you like to say to anybody who is in the same position you're in as far as being a survivor of abuse and has not come forward? Well, I'll answer this. The second one first, which is that with Shane's permission, we'll put some contact information for me with the program info so that if anyone wants to reach out to me personally, they can do that. And especially anyone else who had an unfortunate incident with Gerard J. Ex-Jesuit too. please. This has been, it's just unbelievable, but... I do feel that the more people who come forward and speak out, that it might create a little more urgency in reexamining and looking again at the situation. I do believe that Jerry had feelings for Kathy, I guess, of some sort, but I don't think they were 100% sincere. And again, I'll just repeat, Sorry to let you know, but she wasn't the only nun that he brought to my home. What do you want to say to him? That he should get in touch with Gemma if he's interested in this truth and reconciliation idea. And he can be the first guy in line, and I will be the first person to speak to him. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.